Second Peter and the chapter 1. We'll read together from the verse 16 down to the end of the chapter. Second Peter chapter 1 to verse 16. We have, for we have not followed cunningly devised fables when we made known unto you the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For he received from God the Father honour and glory when there came such a voice to him from the excellent glory. This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And this voice which came from heaven we heard when we were with him in the holy mount. We have also a more sure, sure word of prophecy. Whereunto ye do well that ye take heed. As unto a light that shineth in a dark place. Until the day dawn and the day star arise in your hearts. Knowing this first that no prophecy of the scripture is of any private interpretation. For the prophecy came not in old time by the will of man. But holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. Amen. May the Lord bless the reading publicly of his word to all of our hearts this evening. As we consider these final verses of chapter 1, uh, tonight we do so under the heading, The Book That Is To Be Believed. The Book That Is To Be Believed. Let's just still ourselves again. Ask that the Lord would even draw near and speak to us from his word. Father in heaven, we thank thee for this wonderful little epistle that Peter did write to the scattered believers. We thank thee even for the assurance that he had and the hope and that blessed knowledge that he had that thy word was a proven word. It was a perfect word. And Father, we thank thee even tonight that we can testify of it. We thank thee for it in our mother tongue. We thank thee, O God, for those that in past times gave their lives, even in the translation of this uh, wonderful book, into English for us. And Lord, we treasure it today. And Father, we pray now as we come around it that thy spirit will truly illuminate the page before us, will thrill our hearts and speak to us, even as we consider the scriptures as a whole. Lord, bless us, we pray thee this night. And fill us with thy spirit, in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Sometimes we forget just how special uh, this book, the scriptures, uh, truly are. Not only personally, but indeed for society as a whole. Of course, it ought to be the case that the word of God is ever treasured by a Christian. It ought to be the case that the child of God holds this book in the very highest regard. It's more precious than expensive jewellery. It's more precious than anything that we can purchase or we can have within our homes or upon our being. But this book is something that is to be held not only by the child of God, but oh, for the days when it's held in the high regard even by society. Because down through the years, this book has accomplished much good in society. As I was preparing for this study and for this message this evening, I came across a number of quotations by a number of former U.S. presidents down through the history. How refreshing it was in their day and in their presidency 
that they saw a vital place and a prominence for the scriptures, that they believed that their nation, their country, indeed all of mankind needed the scriptures in their lives to rule, to govern, to lead them. I'm not saying all of the presidents that I'm about to mention were Christian, but certainly they did give honor to the word of God. George Washington, the first president, he said it is impossible to rightly govern the world without God and the Bible. John Quincy Adams, he said, So great is my veneration of the Bible that the earlier that my children begin to read it, the more confident will be my hope for their future. Andrew Jackson, he said, That book is the rock upon which our republic rests. Abraham Lincoln said, I believe the Bible is the best gift God has ever given to man. All the good from the Saviour is communicated to us through this book. Herbert Hoover, he said, the whole of the inspiration of our civilization springs from the teachings of Christ and the lessons of the prophets. To read the Bible for these fundamentals is a necessity for American life. For such leaders in our nations today. To have leaders that would give such a place to the scriptures. How often leaders now in the generation in which we live, whether it be in the United Kingdom or whether it be in the U.S. or whatever country you wish to name, nearly all of them will discredit and seek to take the scriptures out of society as a whole. But we need leaders such as that that realize that God's word is precious. God's word is there to direct and to lead. You know, Peter in his writings here, as he comes to the end of this particular section, he's really opened up the section in the verse 16 with those words, we have not followed cunningly devised fables. You know, I paused it and I thought, well, what could he be talking about? Or what could we say in our day and down through church history, what cunningly devised fables have come to light? Because it is certainly an amazing statement to make. But I thought particularly of what the Roman Catholic Church has brought in regards to purgatory. And I couldn't think of anything that was more cunningly devised than purgatory. Something that has such a grip, a personal grip upon so many individuals. That nothing you can find in Scripture that the Roman Catholic Church could say that is where we are getting this from. And yet to hold all of their people with such a vice-like grip and such a fear that they are willing to pay and to pay and to pay and to pray and to pray and to do anything and to do everything, to do pilgrimages and to pay for indulgences because of that fear and that concern about loved ones in purgatory. Oh, there are certainly cunningly devised fables. In my opinion, you don't get much more cunning than that. Peter, as I said, began the section with that little phrase, we have not followed cunningly devised fables. And then as we looked last week, he went on to talk of the glorious memory of the Mount of Transfiguration. That wonderful time when Peter, James and John were taken up into the high mountain and the Lord revealed his glory unto them. And the voice of God came down from the excellent glory. And this is my beloved son. And you know, when you think of it, the apostles were the primary witnesses. 
of the life and the ministry of Christ. They were witnesses of his sufferings and of his death. And of course they were witnesses of his resurrection and of his ascension. Indeed out of all of the apostles Peter and John are the only two that can claim to have witnessed nearly everything. Even more so than James. Peter and John saw more. Because they were there and they can tick nearly every single box. They were there in the Mount of Transfiguration. They were there with Jairus' daughter. They were there with the agonies of Christ in Gethsemane when he went a little further and he took Peter, James and John with him and he became sore amazed and very heavy. They were there for the trials of Christ because Peter and John followed. They were there at the crucifixion of Christ. They were there at the resurrection because only Peter and John went to the tomb. And Peter and John were actually the two that looked into the tomb and went into the tomb. Of course, they were there at the ascension upon the Mount of Olivet. Peter and John can say that they witnessed it all. And yet Peter in these verses, even though he can hold his hand up and he can say, I am a primary witness, I am one that ought to be listened to because I saw with my own eyes, I heard with my own ears, I was there for it all. But yet even now as he comes to these verses, he says in the verse 19, we also have a more sure word of prophecy. That's not bringing his words into questionable uh, placing. That is not him saying, well, some of what I have said might be wrong. No, he fully believes everything that he has said. He has told the truth and everything that he has recorded. But yet he can hold his hand up and he can say, nevertheless, not my simple words. But we have something else that we can hold on to that's even more perfect. He takes a spotlight off himself. He shines it upon the word of God. He shines it upon that book, the book that is to be believed. There are three things I want to leave with you in our time this evening. Firstly, I want you to see the verse 19, that the scriptures are a sure word. The scriptures are a sure word. Verse 19, it says, we also have a more sure word of prophecy. Now our experience today is that we have the complete canon of Scripture. That which is perfect has come. We have Genesis right through to Revelation. We have the entire two Testaments, the entire canon, all 66 books as God has devised and God has brought to place. We have the perfect Scriptures. Nothing needs to be added, nothing else and nothing ever will be taken away. But that was not Peter's experience. Peter had the Old Testament in its entirety. But in reality, Peter was living the New Testament. And as he followed the Lord Jesus during those years of earthly ministry, he saw before his very eyes the Old Testament being fulfilled. He saw the Old Testament prophecies coming to place and coming into the Lord Jesus Christ, into his life and into his ministry. And as he was there with the Lord and as he witnessed these things, he saw verse after verse, prophecy after prophecy, messianic promise after messianic promise coming to light in Christ. Every single one of them came to pass perfectly. Every Old Testament prophecy in relation to the incarnation of Christ 
They all happened. He was born in Bethlehem. Every Old Testament prophecy in relation to the ministry of Christ, his involvement, his interaction with the Jewish people, it all came true. Every Old Testament prophecy in regards to his death and his sufferings on the cross, every single one of them came true. How often do we read in the Gospels, you go through the four Gospels, and how often do you read those words, and I paraphrase them, that it said that, he, that Christ says, or that Christ did, that scripture might be fulfilled. The words that he said, the actions that he did, all were to fulfill scripture. Even when Christ was upon the cross, in the midst of all of the pain, and the agony, Yet Christ wouldn't die. And Christ did not die until every single Old Testament prophecy had been fulfilled. Remember, Christ had the power. He says, I I have the power to lay down my life. I have the power to take it up. In other words, Christ could have given up the ghost at any moment on the cross. But Christ refused to give up the ghost. Christ refused to die until every single Old Testament prophecy had been fulfilled. He waited until every jot and tittle of Old Testament prophecy was complete. So you think of Peter in those years after the Lord has ascended up into glory. And Peter's maybe doing his daily devotions. He's reading through the Old Testament scriptures for himself. And of course he's all of these memories. He's all of these experiences that he has witnessed. And he's reading through the scriptures. And it's as if he's just tick boxing. He's like yes I remember that happened. Yes I remember that happened. And every single prophecy that he came to. He has the memory. He has the witnessing of it. He has that experience. It all came true. He couldn't find one reference or one verse or even one line of Scripture that was not perfect and was not completed in Christ. And so he declares the Scriptures are a more sure word. But after all, isn't that what Scripture had always stated? If you think of the Psalms, Psalm 19, the verse 7, it says, The law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure. Psalm 93, the verse 5, we'll put a little more emphasis into it. Because the psalmist says, Thy testimonies are very sure. Psalm 111, the verse 7, it says, All his commandments are sure. You know, the strongest testimony that God has given to us is the Scriptures. Some people think that all miracles are more persuasive. If you can see lightning bolts, or you can see dead walking, or you can see great experiences and great demonstrations of power and great miracles being done, then surely they are greater. But remember, faith cometh by hearing, hearing by the word of God. There's no mention of miracles. Faith cometh by hearing, hearing by the word of God. There's no mention of seeing. You remember the evidence that's given in the account. Luke 16. 
Turn with me just for a few moments to it. Luke 16, verse 27 to the end. The parable, of course, or the account of the rich man and Lazarus. The rich man, whenever we pick up the reading, verse 27, the rich man's now in hell and Verse 23 tells us, And hell he lifted up his eyes, being in torments. He seeth Abraham afar off, and Lazarus in his bosom. Down in verse 27, the man in hell, he says, I pray thee therefore, Father, that I would send him to my father's house. In other words, that Lazarus would come back to life. That Lazarus would be raised from the dead and Lazarus would go on to his family because verse 28 says, I have five brethren that he may testify unto them, lest they also come into this place of torment. Abraham answers, verse 29, they have Moses and the prophets, let them hear him. But the man says, no, he says, nay, Father Abraham, but if one went on to them from the dead, they will repent. But Abraham's answer comes back very clearly and he says, If they hear not Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded though one rose from the dead. In other words, if they won't believe scripture, then they're not going to believe a miracle. If they won't believe what God's word states clearly and what God's word brings to them, then they're not going to believe people walking and their dead being raised to life. What he's really saying there is scripture is more sure and scripture is more powerful even than miracles. And it will bring those from death unto life spiritually far quicker and to a greater measure than ever someone doing a miracle. You want someone to be persuaded of their sin. God give his word. That's why we believe the miracles and all of the gifts of the Spirit that the disciples, the apostles were able to do in the book of Acts. That's why they ceased. Because whenever the scriptures were complete, this is what we need. This is all we need. This is what God has used time and time again through the foolishness of preaching. In other words, through even presenting and preaching forth his word. We don't need to be able to do the miracles. We don't need to be able to speak the different languages. We don't need to be able to raise men and women to their feet. God has given his complete word. And it's a sure word. But I see secondly also in... Second Peter 1, that not only is it a sure word, but it is a shining word. Because of verse 19 it says, Whereunto you do well that you take heed is unto a light that shineth in a dark place. You know, you think of Christ. He's not only the Son of God, but he is the Word. That's what John 1 and 1 said, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And we know that God is light. And we know that the coming of Christ brought light into the world. That's what Matthew records. Matthew 4 and verse 16. He says the people which sat in darkness saw great light. And to them which sat in the region in the shadow of death. Light has sprung up. In other words the ministry of Christ as it began. It brought forth light into the world. 
Luke 1, 78, it says, Through the tender mercy of our God, whereby the day spring from on high hath visited us. That word for day spring, it simply means the rising of light. In other words, you think of the darkness of the world. You think of all of the darkness and the wickedness of sin. And yet, the light just rises. I don't know how many of us make it up for dawn and for sunrise. I'm not going to ask for a show of hands when the last time you saw a sunrise. But you think how dark the world is and then the sun just comes up. The darkness can't stop it. The moment that sun just starts to peak up and it just rises and the light just shines and shines and shines and the darkness just goes back and recedes and recedes and the light just continues to rise. That's what scripture is. That's what the Lord Jesus Christ did in coming into this world. The darkness of sin was dispelled by that great light. Now that's what the scriptures are today in this darkened world. They are light. Psalm 119, 105, you know the verse well. Thy word is a lamp unto our feet, a, a light unto our path. It's Christ that shines through this book. You know, it's a humbling thought, but it's a wonderful thought. Every time you open the Bible, Every time you read the Bible, you're coming into the presence of God. It doesn't matter if you're at home. It doesn't matter if you're in your car. It doesn't matter where you open this book. When you open this book and you start to read it, you're stepping into the presence of God. Because this is Christ. Peter here exhorts the believers, take heed of, to that shining light. He says in the verse 19, he says, take heed as unto a light that shineth in a dark place until the day dawn and the day star arise in your hearts. We enter into the light whenever we're in this book. And of course, the more that we're in this book, then the more that we will shine. It was not the experience of Moses, the more that he spent in the presence of God. Then when he came out, his face shone. And the cloth had to be administered, the cloth had to be put over his face. Such was the shining of, of Moses. But what are we to do in this world? We're to shine. Matthew 5.14, ye are the light of the world, Paul then would exhort the Philippian church in Philippians 2.15 to be blameless, harmless, the sons of God without rebuke in the midst of a crooked and a perverse nation among whom ye shine as lights in the world. We are to shine. Even as the word of God shines. Even as Christ shines. We are to shine. After all, Christ is a day star. He calls himself in Revelation 22 and 16 the bright and the morning star. doesn't matter how dark the world is. Christ still shines. doesn't matter even if we feel the world is getting darker. 
Christ still shines. It doesn't matter how dark we believe the world will ever get. Christ still shines. And his word still shines. His light will never dim or disappear. Yes, it may dim in certain countries as they seek to eradicate it. But they've never been able to eradicate it yet. You think down through the centuries, the great efforts that have been made to eradicate the word of God from society. Whether that be the burning of scriptures, whether that be putting to death the translators, whether that be putting to death the preachers and those that had copies of the Bible and they sought to do their utmost to eradicate, they couldn't stop the light. They never will. That light shines forever. The word settled in heaven forever. That means the light can never be extinguished. It's a sure word. It's a shining word. And thirdly and finally in the verses 20 and 21. We see that it is a spirit given word. Because verse 20 says, knowing this first, that no prophecy of the scripture is of any private interpretation. For the prophecy came not in old time by the will of man, but holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. Why do we believe the Bible? It's very easy sometimes just to go, well, my mummy and my daddy told me that it was right. That may be true, your mum and dad, if they were faithful, then they did tell you the scriptures were right. But that's not proven that the scriptures are true just because your mum and daddy told you. <coughs> one preacher was speaking to a group of students one time. It was in universities, of course. Very little place would be given to the word of God. The preacher was speaking to a group of students and he says, if you're ever asked by a professor why you believe the word of God, then use this answer. And he took Second Peter 1 to verses 16 to 21. And he says, I believe the scriptures because they are a reliable collection of historical documents by eyewitnesses during the lifetime of other eyewitnesses. They report supernatural events in the fulfillment of specific prophecies and claim that their writings are divine in origin. That covers everything that's in those five verses. And when you think of the Bible as a whole, in its original form, before it was ever translated, before the translators ever came along and did their work, whenever the scriptures were in their original form, they were written over a period of 1,500 years. Across three different continents, written in three different languages by 40 different authors from various backgrounds, including shepherds, fishermen, tax collectors, kings, and even soldiers. And yet all of them, at all times in their writings, are in complete unity. 
doesn't matter what culture they're from. It doesn't matter what continent they're from. It doesn't matter what century they're from. Every single one of the writers in Scripture, whether you're going for the books of Moses, the book of Job, whether you're going into the New Testament, whichever one you want to follow, whichever one you want to pick, they're all in complete agreement. In the Old Testament, you'll find the crucifixion of Christ. Crucifixion hadn't even been thought up yet by the Romans. And yet it's mentioned in the book of Psalms. Isaiah 45 and verse 1, Isaiah 44, 28, they speak of a man by the name of Cyrus who will release the Israelites from captivity in Babylon. Isaiah wrote that before Cyrus was even thought of. There was no king called Cyrus when Isaiah wrote that. All of the writers moved by the Holy Ghost. All of those things that we would flag up and say they're impossible with man. How could it possibly be that Isaiah could name, very name the king himself that would do the releasing and would sign the papers? How could he know Cyrus' name? Surely that's impossible. No, with God it's possible. Because the Spirit of God moved him. We do believe all scripture is given by inspiration. Yes, we can study the writing style. We can see the traits of the author. We can look, as we've mentioned in the past, the way that Peter writes. It's his personality. You can see those personality traits. He's a man that's always on the go. He's a man of activity. And he doesn't waste any time, even in his writings. It's just verse after verse. Everything's action we talk about that in the book of mark as well that peter's influence upon john mark as he wrote it it's all action there's so many miracles recorded in the book of mark and we can see personality traits but it's important to note every single one of these books every single word that's recorded is there because of the holy spirit and you notice it's only ever holy men in other words it's only ever christians that write There's not one book in this Bible that was written by an unsaved man. Not one. They didn't go along and ask the greatest writer or the greatest scribe of their day. Of course, in Peter's day and that which followed in John and all you... You have all of those great Greek writers. You have the great Greek minds of philosophy. They didn't go along to any of them and say, could you write down? God moved the foolish to confound the wise. And this book was written for everyone. Everyone, everywhere. And it's still relevant and applicable to everyone, everywhere. This book is as up to date today as it was a thousand years ago, two thousand years ago. That's why Tyndale had a great desire to have this book in English for even the Playboy. That everyone would read the scriptures for themselves. Because from start to finish, it's God speaking. From start to finish, it's that which we need to hear 
regardless what we are facing, regardless the challenges, regardless the contentions, regardless the persecutions, regardless what may come, this is the only book that we can ever hold to. It's there for the young and it's there for the old. It's there for the rich and it's there for the poor. It's there for the educated. And I say this respectfully, it's there for the simple minds too. It's the only book that you can ever lift and say it's perfect. It's not simply the thoughts of Joseph Smith, what he believed he saw and heard. It's not simply the thoughts and the writings of Muhammad. Forty different authors from all different periods of history moved by God to bring us this one perfect book. May we ever cherish it. May we ever believe it. May we ever obey it. May the Lord bless his word to our hearts this night.